The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening, everyone, and welcome to IMC, and Happy New Year, and it's the first <clears throat> Monday talk of the year. So is the volume okay, everyone? <clears throat> okay. So, um, starting this evening, I'm going to give uh, a series of uh, talks on um, the... Uh, the source text for mindfulness practice that we teach here. The mindfulness practice in Buddhism comes from a particular text called the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And um, it's a marvelous text and it provides the instructions that are interpreted in many ways in the modern world, including uh, how we teach here at IMC. And I'm very fond of this text. It's a very important text for our tradition. And it's a long text. You know, it's a long thing. So it'll be a series of talks that um, I'll give whenever I'm here and uh, until I'm done. And uh, so, for example, I won't be here next week. And uh, so whenever I'm here, I'll come and give these talks. And... um, I, thank you. When Jim uh, announced that I was going to give a class on concentration starting Wednesday, I realized that it's a nice coincidence that I'm going to, at the same time, kind of do a series on mindfulness and a series on concentration. The concentration series will be finished long before the mindfulness one. Um, um, but they're kind of nice. They're starting together. These are the two primary uh, faculties that we have the attentional faculties that are engaged when people do meditation practice, especially mindfulness meditation. It's the faculty of mindfulness and the faculty of concentration. And these two are wonderful partners and work together in important ways. It's possible to practice mindfulness without a lot of concentration, but to take mindfulness to the depth or the fullness that it can reach, it requires a partnership of strong concentration. And these two work together. So to start this series on the teachings, Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, I want to tell a uh, Buddhist story. It comes from Mahayana Buddhism, a very different form, form of Buddhism, to make a point. And uh, this story uh, goes this way, that there was a, a young person, who, um, young adult, who decided to leave his village to go off and explore the world. And a person had a friend in the village who was concerned about the welfare of the traveler. And um, so while the the soon-to-be traveler was sleeping, uh, the friend sewed a very valuable uh, jewel, gem, into the inner lining of the traveler's coat. While the traveler set off across the lands and was gone for a long time and got lost in all kinds of adventures and um, uh, lost money and lost food. And and um, and after many years, came back very impoverished and limping back into the hometown. And uh, there was his friend waiting and 
friend said, you know, well, how have you been? And, well, it's been rough and, you know, I've been pretty poor, not much, not, not much going on. And, um, and they said, oh, really? But you're not so poor. You, 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 in your lining of your uh, coat, there's this, well, very valuable gem that you could have just taken that and sold it and you would have been a wealthy person. So that's the end of the story. <laughs> it's not a very satisfying story. <clears throat> what? Check your linings. Check your linings, yeah. <laughs> and the, um, but the story is, is uh, used in, and as, um, with, to convey the idea that uh, we, tra- we ourselves travel around the world, travel through our lives, and in some ways can be e- easily become impoverished not maybe um, monetarily, but certainly spiritually impoverished. And, um, and it's un- unnecessary to do this because in the lining of our hearts, in the our mind, there's this valuable gem, um, um, priceless gem that's there. And all you have to do is you know, turn to something as close as to the inside of your coat. And uh, that closely you can find this gem and have it be spiritually enriched in great ways. And now this gem that we have is our capacity for attention. And um, we have a phenomenal capacity for attention. We use it every day uh, in all kinds of different uh, ways. Uh, And in Buddhism, we're taking this very ordinary capacity we have to pay attention and highlighting it, pointing it out to us, and developing it so it becomes uh, a bright and shining gem that can support us and bring us lots of, certainly, inner wealth that can come. And, um, <clears throat> and we have a range of attentional faculties that are, are faculties that add up together to become what we call attention. Attention is not a, a unitary, singular thing, but it's a, kind of this, uh, it's a composite or the sum total or a variety of different um, attentional faculties that come into play. And so we have the faculty for recognition. We can recognize what's there. You go, oh, that's, you know, I'm holding a, you know, a transmitter. I'm looking at my glass. I can see all of you in this room. I can recognize what's here. And, um, and that capacity for recognition is, shouldn't be taken as being a lightweight kind of thing. It's actually part, part of the apparatus that's used for cultivating this high-quality attention that we're doing in mindfulness practice. We also have the capacity to simply kind of kind of lean back in a sense in the, in the mind and observe what's going on and uh, without interfering with it and just have the observational power, just let things come, kind of a passive receptive awareness that just watches or sees or perceives what's there, sees how things come and go. We have the capacity to um, feel, which means uh, to, to feel physically, to sense what our experience is. That's different than observing, different than, um, than recognizing, but we can have an intimacy with our experience. Um, just like if you go in a cold day and stand in the sun to get warm, um, you know, you, 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 I think most people don't just stand there, uh, you know, and look at their phone and wait to get warm. I think if you're cold, to really enjoy it, you kind of open up, face the sun as widely as you can, and let and kind of kind of let the the, the uh, warmth absorb into your body through your clothes, perhaps, 
And you can kind of feel the physicality of that, the warmth coming in and seeping in and warming you up. So that's feeling, which is also part of the attentional capacities we have. Another one is um, the capacity to use our attention wisely, to know which of those different faculties you use at different times, when to use recognition, and that's what's helpful, when to use um, observation, when to be present for stuff with intimacy of feeling something very almost physically being present for it, um, and uh, when to have attention be very close to the experience, when to have attention be very far from the experience, look at it from a distance. There's all these choices we can make about how these different parts of attention are used. And as we develop mindfulness practice, we're actually learning the different uh, uh, faculties, how they work, how they come into play, so we can have wise attention. We can choose wisely how to engage and be present for what's going on at different times. Together with the attentional faculties we have, uh, part of it is the capacities to become concentrated. And these, as I said earlier, work together. And we have the, the capacity, attentional capacity, to hold the attention steady uh, so it doesn't waver and get very stable, uh, um, focused, and very centered, centered attention. We have capacity for peripheral awareness. And sometimes it's useful to have the peripheral awareness, sometimes it's useful to have the central focus, steadiness of focus. And I can go on and on. But I think that the lesson I was trying to give here is the idea that there's many different mental functions that are operating that add up to what we would, you know, conventionally call attention. Someone says, pay attention, you know, now you know, you can ask them, what do you mean? (laughs) You know, uh, what specifically do you want me to do when you say, pay attention? So in in, um, mindfulness practice is a practice of using these different attentional functions, faculties we have, and uh, engaging them in such a way that awareness becomes lucid, that awareness becomes quite strong and supports us in our lives in important ways. And this very strong, when it's strong, um, this uh, lucid awareness is what sati is. Sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. We have now, uh, you know, since the time I started studying mindfulness when I was young, um, only the Buddhists were mindful, <laughs> or used that word that I knew back then. But now, you know, we kind of, you know, you know, we've lost the word. <laughs> it's not our word anymore. And now it's a word that's used all over everywhere, and clinically, and settings, people teach mindfulness, and... There's mindful. You can go if you go on Amazon. I did this five years ago, or something. You go on Amazon, and uh, you could uh, draw up a list of all the books that have mindfulness in it. And so I did. When I did it, I think it was six years ago. I did it. I had a very, very long list. I bet it's longer now. And it's amazing what uh, back then what uh, uh, field of human life are associated with mindfulness. Mindfulness and X, right? So there was a book back then on mindfulness and poker. I thought that was kind of interesting. What did the Buddha think of that? And uh, there was even a little book, uh, uh, Mindfulness and Angry Bird. So that was pretty interesting, I thought. 
And so there's mindfulness about money and sex and relationships and you name it. There seemed like there was something, you know, mindfulness in this. The thing about, it's wonderful. I think it's probably a good thing for our society overall. But the thing is that what mindfulness means in those settings turns out to have evolved and is quite different from what it means in the Buddhist settings. And uh, generally, mindfulness in the, in the secular settings where it's used, uh, they have, in, in terms of the range of attentional faculties that we can engage in, they're using only a small subset of it. And they call that mindfulness. Whereas in Buddhism, the word mindfulness is a, is a general term, not for a particular thing that we do with the mind, but rather a state <clears throat> that arises strongly as we develop uh, the practice of attention, these different attentional faculties. And this strong state is a, st- a strong state of awareness. One Buddhist teacher calls it lucid awareness. And awareness is something that you don't do, it's more something you allow to happen. It's something you can establish, you can dwell in awareness, you can have strong awareness present. But it's not necessarily it's like, you know, you, like, let's be aware. If, if, you, if you be aware, you're actually choosing one of the other attentional faculties in order to kind of bring on this thing called awareness. You might observe, you might recognize, you might feel, uh, you might hold your, your attention steady, you might use peripheral awareness, you might use a central attention, all these different things. So the purpose of the Satipatthana Sutta, this, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, is to engage the attentional faculties we have strongly enough and well enough so that sati, awareness, becomes strong and stable, that it becomes a lucid experience of awareness, lucid awareness. And what I mean by lucid is that awareness becomes such a highlighted phenomenon that you're aware that you know that you're aware. You're not lost and preoccupied with your your things, what you're thinking about, or your activities, or your desires, or your fears, or fantasies, or whatever. Uh, everything else kind of stands out in, in or say awareness is what's highlighted. And what's in the awareness, you can be, see it very clearly, <clears throat> but you're not lost in it. It's like being in a very, very big, spacious room or cavern or cave or I don't know what space. And what stands out is the clarity and the peace or the stillness of the, of the space in the room. And in that spaciousness, you can kind of see clearly the objects of the room. But what stands out the most is the spaciousness. Wow, that's cool. And it changes your whole mood to be in certain very spacious, open, peaceful spaces. But if you go into these big open spaces and you're really concerned about some particular detail, maybe you lost your keys last time you were in there and you're looking for your keys... You know, you you don't notice the space. You're just like staring and studying for your keys everywhere, especially if it's important to get somewhere with your car, right? You're preoccupied. You don't notice. Human beings spend a tremendous amount of time preoccupied. And so we don't really, we know we're aware, but to really feel the strength of awareness so that this highlighted sense of spaciousness or openness or clarity 
is uh, is not available to us to um, to take our practice or our wisdom or our insight to a whole different level. And that's what uh, mindfulness practice is doing: is taking this uh, capacity for awareness, making it lucid, making it strong, and stable. So you really, when you're in the pre- you're really in the present moment, not just to be in the present moment. <clears throat> But to have this clarity of awareness, wow, I'm here. And there's a paradigm shift for many people, a paradigm from thinking what's most important in life are the objects to appreciating that maybe what's most important is the awareness that holds the objects, that experiences the objects, that sees the objects that's there. And to go down the street, you know, and grab someone off the sidewalk and say, hey, by the way, <clears throat> the most important thing you could ever do in your life is to be, you know, have this lucid, open awareness. They'll probably think you're crazy. <clears throat> you know, there, there's no context for it. So it's kind of a foreign idea for many people. <clears throat> but for people who start meditating, this is one of the things that we slowly begin to uh, cultivate, develop, and appreciate. A paradigm shift There's another way of being and living. It's almost like a different life that we get to live if we can live in strong awareness. And there's a lot of benefits to it, <clears throat> to this. And uh, the Buddha listed a number of them. <clears throat> One of them, uh, in terms of the three trainings that Buddhism is about, trainings in uh, ethics, trainings in samadhi, and trainings in wisdom, mindfulness supports all three. The Buddha said that uh, as the mindfulness practice is cultivated and becomes strong, uh, it it tends to make people more ethical. It becomes easier and easier and more natural to live by the five precepts. Not to kill, not to steal, not to engage in sexual misconduct, not to lie, and not to get involved in intoxication. And rather than a duty or an obligation or a moralistic requirement to be ethical, there's something about the cultivation of this very strong sensitivity of awareness, that lucid awareness, that creates a moral sensitivity or an ethical sensitivity in us. That uh, it becomes kind of natural. Of course I'm not going to do these things uh, that uh, are, uh, are a certain kind of uh, uh, a- agitating forces within me. They're constricting. They're actually limiting me or diminishing my wellness, diminishing my openness, my bigness to be involved in unethical things. Of course I'm not going to do that because I know something better. Mindfulness is very effective for developing samadhi. Back in the Buddhist time, it was one of the means for samadhi was cultivating these four foundations of mindfulness. And um, to be able to be really, to hold your attention or keep your attention in the present moment, hold it steady and see what's going on, it tends to calm the mind, steady the mind, focus the mind, and, um, and develop a lot more capacity for concentration. This is useful certainly in meditation to enter into samadhi, but it's also useful in daily life. Uh, I, can, uh, I can see in my own mind these days still that there are days where um, I'm, I'm meditating more and I have a much you know, deeper states of concentration I've touched into. And when I come out of those states, my mind is much more uh, nimble, uh, 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 quicker, uh, more creative, <clears throat> uh, 
make connections quicker, and so I'm just kind of smarter. <laughs> uh, and when I'm not, don't I, I don't. Um, <clears throat> um, I, yes. <laughs> the other day, I <clears throat> I came back from retreat, and I I um, my wife gave me a crossword puzzle. And uh, I just whipped through it like I'd never done before, and I attributed it to coming right out of retreat. So you know, so you know, I don't know if that's motivating, but <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. and um, so um, the So you know, it helps us in our daily life that way. And so when you, when I notice, notice when I'm not don't have that concentration going so well, that I'm not as you know clever or smart, or not going so well for me. Maybe like today. <laughs> so um, um, <clears throat> so it helps with samadhi. But the key thing that mindfulness is supposed to cultivate, and why the Buddha really emphasized it, was for the value of cultivating wisdom. A word which we, we, we translate as wisdom can just as well be translated as insight. To have really deep, penetrating perception of what's going on here in our human life. What's really here? What's really deep? What's the underlying structures? What's the underlying uh, operating systems of our hearts, our minds, our reality? In a way that uh, only, only for the Buddha's, Buddha's idea, only by touching into that depth that's often not available in ordinary states of mind, uh, do we touch into the understandings and the wisdom that are liberating. They can free us from how we cling and how we get attached, how we get constricted, how we get <clears throat> caught and preoccupied in very profound, deep ways, like attached to self and to life and to all kinds of things. And most people, most of us, are probably more attached to than we realize. And one of the functions of meditation is to get quiet enough and still enough to see the depth of how attached we are. And that really helps because many people are mystified why they suffer so much. Uh, because they don't see the operating principles of what's really going on in the depth of their mind. Because it, you really have to have a very still, focused, clear mind to see the underlying structures of attachment that are operating, that really are need to be touched for the kind of liberation of the heart that the Buddha was talking about. So this mindfulness practice, that, that's the, you know, the, has many different functions and values in our life. And the last one I'll mention that the Buddha uh, taught is that mindfulness practice is a preeminent practice for protecting oneself and for protecting others. There's a delightful little story or vignette that the Buddha told. He said there was um, an acrobat and an acrobat's assistant. And they would, you know, they did acrobatic tricks, you know, for, I guess, for donations. And they were going to put on their show one day. And uh, the apprentice said to the assistant, the the, the, the acrobat said to the apprentice, apprentice, let's go do our tricks. But while we do them, why don't you pay attention to me carefully and I'll pay attention to you as, because acrobats, they were going to do it on top of each other. They were, they were the, 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 what do you call the, the, the devices they were using for acrobats was their bodies. 
So they would climb up on each other and stand on each other's hands and heads and do things. So the idea was, if you, why don't you, you watch over me and I'll watch over you and that way we'll stay, stay, stay safe. And the apprentice said, no, I'll watch over myself and you watch over yourself and that way we'll be safe. And so they went to the Buddha and said, you know, who's right? <laughs> and the Buddha said, this is how it is. At least, you know, outside of, I don't know if he knew about acrobats, but he said, um, uh, if, you, uh, if you pay attention to yourself through mindfulness, that's how you'll protect others. That's a powerful statement. And now one of the ways it protects others, it protects them from you. <laughs> Which is not a, it's not a small thing, right? To become a safe person in the world. So in this discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha uh, opens up by saying, there's a direct way for the purifications of beings, to, how to purify the mind and heart, to overcome sorrow, distress, lamentation, to realize uh, liberation, to be experience nibbana, to so the direct way, and that direct way, he said, is to practice the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four foundations for cultivating awareness, this lucid awareness. And then he enumerated what those are. So the first foundation is the foundation of mindfulness of the body, awareness of the body. The second is mindfulness of um, uh, feel what's called feeling tones. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. And then the third is uh, mindfulness of the mind. And the fourth is mindfulness of what's called dhammas. Uh, a simple way of discussing it maybe is um, <clears throat> the inner mental processes that either bring us suffering the ways we contribute to our own suffering and our own how our minds operate, or the inner processes that lead to liberation, and to be able to have one of the one of the values of this deep mindfulness is to see these paths that the mind can take, and the mind can take a path towards more suffering and a path to freedom, and to see those paths makes a world of difference because then we can take one more than the other. We can support one rather than the other, to really know it for ourselves from the inside out. What's nice about these four areas is they go kind of from the outside in to deeper, more subjective areas of ourselves. Uh, And it's a beautiful path, the route of mindfulness, that as we do this practice, we become more and more intimate, more deeper. We touch ourselves in a deeper, subjective ways than uh, in a more uh, higher quality ways than many people have in their ordinary life. So the body, in a sense, in this kind of uh, framework, is kind of like the outermost uh, circle of who we are. The first thing we contact, the easiest thing to experience. And in this, when Buddha talked about mindfulness of the body, he talked about things like being mindful of when you're walking. You know, it's not too difficult to know you're walking. It doesn't require a lot of sophistication. When you're sitting, when you're standing, when you're putting on your clothes, when you're urinating, when you're defecating. So all these different parts of life are included. You want to become aware of what the sensations and experiences of your body are. 
the, 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 or the so that, that's kind of a little bit coarse. It's a little bit like you know the coarse body. What's here? You can tap and feel yourself. Then a little bit more subtle. It takes a little bit more care and attention to notice. Is not just the physicality, but what the uh, the the, um, the what it feels like to experience the physicality. So there's experience and what it feels like to experience it. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? And that's a little bit more getting now a little bit more under the skin in a sense to experience something that's a little bit more subjective. As we settle in more, then more subjective and deeper inside, closer to kind of what some people might say who we are, is the state of our minds or the quality of our hearts. The quality of our mind is um, what one of the things we're, we're hoping to become the caretaker of. In terms of this jewels that we have in our lining, <clears throat> the quality of our mind is one of the most important things that we have. And it turns out the only person who can really safeguard and care for and be responsible for the quality of your own mind, quality of your own heart, is yourself. To forfeit that responsibility and re- expect someone else to take care of it for you um, makes people kind of impoverished and sets up a, uh, a conditions that can just make a lot of suffering. But to learn how to be the caretaker of your own heart is one of the great um, <clears throat> tasks of a lifetime. And to be able to track one's mind, heart, the quality, and keep it good, keep it open, keep it in a way that you feel really comfortable to live in your own heart, comfortable to live in your mind, is a beautiful thing. But then going even more subjective, more deep, in the quality of the mind, <clears throat> is the, all the different uh, little movements of ac- factors, activities of the mind, what the mind actually does that contributes to the quality of the mind. And these are movements of desire, or movements of joy, movements of equanimity and peace, movements of mindfulness, movements of aversion, movements of clinging, movements of letting go, movements of, uh, of real insight into experience. And that's the fourth foundation. And this now we're really getting into something that feels very intimate, very personal, very satisfying to really be here because of this is where, this is where the liberation begins to happen, where it can really unfold. So, um, <clears throat> so I like to think of the four foundations of mindfulness when we do this kind of practice is we're setting forth on a journey. The Buddha talked at a path. He said it was a direct path. But I like to think of a journey. Um, and that uh, it's not a quick fix. It's not like just, you know, find the button and just push that button and you'll be happier ever after. Um, but it's a journey that can take years of... Uh, developing and cultivating awareness, the different attentional faculties we have, uh, developing it to a, a degree that we becomes more and more useful for us. And also, as we do it, a lot of self-understanding, a lot of de- not just self-understanding, but understanding of our life in some deep way. And, um, and it's a fantastic journey. It's a journey of a lifetime to do this. There's no end to it. But I found that in these, you know, now over 40 years that I've been doing this kind of practice, um, it just seems to get better and better. And I just, I'm just delighted by it all. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and there's not uncommon for me 
to, um, from it occurred to me as I go about my life, you know, and getting busy and stuff, and say, you know, Gil, <laughs> you know, um, maybe you shouldn't be, you know, so preoccupied in your thoughts so much as you are. Why don't you just kind of, you know, relax and be aware a little bit more. Be aware of what's happening. And so I'd, I'll do it. And, and I, I kind of like begin to smile. I'm just so happy. It's just like I was a little bit amused, a little bit delighted, a little bit kind of content, a little bit. It just makes me happy. Uh, this, and I, you know, and maybe that makes me weird. <laughs> to, be, to, to be happy just by, by just being aware. I mean, you know, <clears throat> there's no monetary value. But uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's like this treasure, it's this jewel that's there. And to be able to, to feel it and say, oh, there it is. And part of the jewel of it, part of the treasure of it, <clears throat> and this is, uh, is at some point what you might discover that inherent <clears throat> in a lucid state of awareness is freedom. Maybe not 100% freedom, but you can have a palpable feeling of the freedom, the openness, the non-attachment, the non-clinging, the spaciousness. And at least my experience, I think it's true, is that it's one of the most deeply satisfying experiences that a human being can have. It's also, when you do it really well and deeply, <clears throat> uh, it's, it's the most beautiful experience you can have. Uh, the most beautiful things I've seen in this universe. I haven't been a lot of places in the universe, but I've been in a lot of places on this planet. <clears throat> been in a lot of beautiful places, and uh, and the most beautiful thing I've ever seen is a pure mind. The pure mind that's free. It's a wonderful thing. So to even to taste, get a taste of it, and the smell of it sometimes it makes me so happy. So I feel so, so lucky to do this thing. So, um, <clears throat> so that's a little bit of an overview of this text called the text and four foundations of mindfulness. That's how it's usually t- uh, translated into English. Um, but I like to translate it a little different these days. I like to tra- translate it as the four ways of establishing awareness. We establish awareness through our body. We establish this wonderful awareness through attention to the feeling tones of our experience. We establish awareness through attention to the quality of our mind or our heart. <clears throat> and we establish awareness through paying attention to these inner, inner mental processes as they operate. And to have this awareness established, that's the, that's the great thing. So, um, <clears throat> so this four foundations of mindfulness, this text that uh, we'll be talking about <clears throat> is kind of like the anthem of the, of the Vipassana movement. And um, I think of it like a poem, though you, if, you read, if some of you went home try to read it today, you say, what is Gil thinking a poem? Um, you know, it, probably if you've never read it before, you probably won't get through it. It probably put you to sleep. Um, but you know, if you live with it for a while and do this practice, it comes alive. 
Uh, it's an artificial text. It isn't like the Buddha sat down and just started teaching, you know, like this is how he taught. Rather, it was probably composed some, maybe some decades, centuries after the Buddha had died. And it was an attempt by the tradition to uh, bring together a lot of the different attentional practices that the Buddha taught and house them in one place and coordinate them together in such a way to show how they can work together uh, to develop this lucid awareness, this, this path of practice. And so it's very, uh, it's very intentionally constructed. It's, uh, it's uh, one of the most kind of, it's almost numerically constructed and organized. But the reason I kind of think of it as a poem or a song is that um, uh, there are 13 main verses, kind of, not verses, but in my funny way of thinking. Um, and then the, in between, the refrain. And the refrain gets repeated each, after each exercise. So 13 exercises, after each exercise, a refrain. <clears throat> and, uh, and the f- refrain, uh, when, for years when I read this text, I ignored it. <clears throat> it's kind of boring, it's kind of technical. And, uh, but it's a thing that gets repeated over and over again. You repeat things because it's important. <clears throat> Turns out this may be the it's 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 the it's the zingers. It's pointing to what's most important as we kind of develop this mindfulness practice. So over these weeks that I do this, we'll talk both about the four foundations of mindfulness, the four established ways of establishing awareness, and how we engage these different attentional faculties to kind of go along. And uh, and then we will also um, uh, talk about that refrain and. And uh, especially as we get further along and how that refrain points to things very important. I hadn't, what I have in mind to do also <clears throat> is um, the second half of the sitting that we do this Monday evening. Like we sit from 7.30 to 7.45. The last 15 or 20 minutes, so 20 minutes, uh, to do a guided meditation uh, that uh, uh, kind of uh, relates to what I'm going to be teaching that evening. And maybe that will make it come a little more alive or more meaningful for you and, and can give you more sense of how this can be done, what, what this is being talked about. So that's um, the plan for when I'm here. So you have to look if you, you know, just come all the time and then I'll be here sometimes. So... Um, we have about five minutes before nine. Do you have any uh, comments, questions, or protests about this? I tried to answer this question myself to other people, but I I think unsuccessfully, when I think in terms of, I'll just describe the way I think in terms of our thinking mind, which is not, I believe is not the mind that's doing the observing. But I think that there's, maybe is there a technical word or description for a mind, the place where the observation is coming from? Mm. It's actually doing the observing, which is separate from the 
conscious thinking mind. There might, you know, if we, in you know, in this ancient texts, ancient teachings, there, it's possible there might be something, but it, nothing jumps out. Uh, because I, don't, I think they prefer not to posit such a thing where it comes from, because uh, then it's then you get into the danger of um, of then assuming that whatever that is is some kind of uh, uh, essence, as some kind of eternal essence, permanent essence, like a soul or a self or something like that. And this ancient tradition is very reluctant to solidify anything into some a thing. It's all process. And so it's all this stuff working together. And, and um, so, so... But, you know, you, 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 I'll say this, then we'll stop. <clears throat> because you brought up thinking. And uh, it's, one of, it's okay, no one's else going to... I'm just going to... I'm, I'm going to be the last word here. <laughs> and um, it's a strange, strange job I have. Get to talk and talk, and nowhere else in my life can I go and just talk like this. But <laughs> so, <laughs> um, let's see. So this thinking thing. Um, I wanted to say it was just something I was th- I've been thinking about lately. I noticed recently that um, I've been. You know, I said I've been doing this for f- over forty years, right? And I still forget. So one of the things I forget sometimes is. Um, <clears throat> so what I want to say about thinking, there are different kinds of thinking. So if we just make a kind of categorical statement about thinking as you know just as if thinking is just one thing we do ourselves a disservice. But uh, one form of thinking is discursive thinking. We're having conversations, we're planning our meals, we're we're arguing with our boss, we're you know remembering our wonderful whatever. And um and so it's kind of like you know like like having a conversation or showing a movie to yourself or something. And that's a relatively coarse way of thinking. And it's easy to get pulled into that world, planning, thinking, figuring out, solving problems, chasing after desires, all kinds of things that we do. And and there's a wonderful way in which this uh, discursive thinking camouflages itself. Because uh, we get so interested in it, either positively or negatively, that we kind of get pulled into it and we don't even know we're doing it. And so I can do that still. I can, oh, I'm doing some important things I have to do, and you know. And I forget, until I sit down to meditate sometimes, how good it is not to do that. (laughs) Oh... Oh, this is good, <laughs> you know. But th- what, what struck me was, I f- after forty years, I still forget this somehow. I get so caught up, I mean, not dramatically, but you're like, oh, oh, here we are again. Great, and it's, it's so. May your discursive mind. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
take frequent vacations <laughs> and provide you with more peace. So, thank you. <laughs>